We know that in the world of Jesus, weddings were longer than a one-day event. In fact, the festivities surrounding a wedding would often be celebrated over the course of seven days. And for those of you who have ever planned a wedding, doesn't that just sound delightful? <laughs> seven days of wedding celebration. And apparently a tradition, a peculiar tradition developed in those days. The bridesmaids, however many there were, would gather together in one place, either at the home of the bride's family or the home of the groom's family, and they would wait for the arrival of the bridegroom. And when the, bride, when the bridegroom finally came, the bridesmaids would run to meet him with their lit lamps, and they would walk with the bridegroom in a procession of light to wherever the bride was. And it was that procession of light that would initiate the actual wedding ceremony with the light symbolizing the blessedness of the event. And part of what added a bit of playfulness to the tradition is that nobody knew exactly when the bridegroom was going to arrive. Maybe he'll arrive today. Maybe he'll arrive tomorrow. Maybe he'll arrive the day after tomorrow. And so extended or sustained readiness was the order of the day for bridesmaids during a time of wedding. They had to be ready to go. They had to spring into action whenever the bridegroom arrived. That's the backdrop for the parable that we heard from Matthew's gospel just a few moments ago. Jesus tells a parable about a wedding. And at this wedding, there are 10 bridesmaids all gathered together in one place as per the tradition. But in the parable that Jesus tells, there is a prolonged delay in the arrival of the bridegroom. We're not given the reason why, but history tells us that such delays were not altogether uncommon. Maybe there were travel complications, maybe there were health issues, or maybe, maybe there were some last-minute negotiations between the groom and the bride's family concerning the financial particulars of the wedding. And during this time of extended waiting, we discovered that five of these bridesmaids are described as wise and five are described as foolish. The foolish bridesmaids are called foolish specifically because they did not bring an adequate supply of oil for their lamps to accommodate a delay. The, the wise bridesmaids apparently brought an overabundance of oil for their lamps so that they would have plenty of light for the days of waiting, but they would also have plenty of oil left over for when the bridegroom finally arrived. One night during this extended waiting, a cry cuts through the air at midnight. He's here! The bridegroom has arrived. Time for the wedding. And five of the bridesmaids run to meet him with their lit lamps, while the other five bridesmaids are suddenly left embarrassed and in desperate need. Please, they begin to beg. Please, share some of your oil with us. Sorry, you're on your own. If we were to give some of our oil to you, we wouldn't have enough left over for our own needs. You're going to have to wake up a merchant. And while these five bridesmaids are searching in the community for oil at midnight, the wedding celebration begins 
and the door is closed and locked. And so these five bridesmaids gather at that locked door and they beg, please, please give us a place in that wedding banquet, in that wedding celebration. But weirdly, the bridegroom is without mercy. We do not know you, he responds. Your lack of preparedness for this event has left you without a place at the wedding. The door will not be opened to you. It's a pretty dreadful story, isn't it? Wish I could give you a happy ending, I do. But it's a pretty awful story, truth be told. And that leads me to the point, and this is an important interpretive point when it comes to the parables. This parable is not an allegory. And resist the temptation to interpret it as one. That is not how parables functioned, literarily, in, in terms of teaching methodology. And furthermore, we know some things. We know, for example, that Jesus is not the bridegroom in this parable. And that's important because there's another part of Scripture in which Jesus is compared to a bridegroom. But Jesus is not the bridegroom in this story. The biblical narrative makes very clear that Jesus, in terms of his character, in terms of his mission, in terms of his purpose, was a suffering and compassionate Savior who willingly gave up his life for the world by crawling onto a Roman tree and who graciously opened doors to people instead of slamming them capriciously in people's desperate faces. Jesus is not the bridegroom in the parable. And the bridesmaids do not function as a one-to-one -one representative of the church because what kind of church would that be? Whose people hoard all the oil for themselves and don't share a portion of it with siblings who are in desperate need? Would you want to be a part of a church like that? I wouldn't. The meaning of the parable is not to be found in allegory. The meaning of the parable is to be found in the impulse that the story embodies. And that is the steadfast commitment to keeping awake and alert, which is precisely the challenge that Jesus offers at the conclusion of the parable. Did you hear it? Keep awake, therefore. Keep awake, for you know not the day or the hour. Literal translation of the Greek, keep alert and wide-eyed, because you do not want to miss the moments when the transformationally redemptive presence of God reveals itself, and it will. You don't want to miss those moments, so keep awake. There is a scholar and a preacher by the name of Halford Luckock who once wrote that the most dangerous ism facing the contemporary church, ISM, the most dangerous ism facing the contemporary church is not racism or sexism. Rather, he wrote, the most dangerous ism facing the contemporary church is somnambulism, sleepwalking. 
people meandering drowsily from worship service to worship service, church event to church event, church meeting to church meeting, day to day, with no real attentiveness to the urgency of individual moments and no spiritual awakeness to the redemptive things that God is accomplishing in our presence, sleepwalking. It's always been a little bit bizarre to me. I don't know how you think about this particular language in culture, and I'm not presupposing anything, but it's always been, quite frankly, a little bizarre to me that there has been such a strong reaction to the concept of wokeness in our culture, especially as it relates to matters of racial justice and contemporary ethical discourse. I mean, people are inclined to turn it into an insult, right? Oh, you're just one of those woke people. And I have to confess, I'm not a cynic, but I always, when I'm accused of that, my tendency is to respond, well, you know, what's the alternative to that? Slumber? Ethical coma? Spiritual drowsiness? What's the alternative? And I find myself wondering, and again, this is without presupposing, I know that there are layers of political conversation that impact all of that. I don't want to minimize that. But I find myself wondering if some of that resistance to the concept of wokeness is really a primal philosophical resentment of the very idea of being told that we might need to wake up in a world that prefers sleep. And I get that, quite frankly, because I know the complicated relationship that I have with my alarm clock, for example. I don't know how you relate to the alarm on your phone or the alarm that's on the nightstand. But there are times when I anthropomorphize this alarm clock so that it becomes a person to whom I speak. No, shut up, not yet. No, Tara, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to this clock. I get a resistance, a resentment to the philosophical idea of being told that we need to wake up. Could that be part of what's at work in a culture that prefers sleep. Think with me for just a moment about the temptations to spiritual drowsiness that confront us every single day. And let me make that a bit more immediate and a bit more specific. Think about how there are temptations to spiritual drowsiness related to the way that we talk about the Middle East these days. Stay with me on this. When we stand exclusively, for example, with our peacekeeping, peace-seeking siblings in Palestine, it can become so tempting to settle for a drowsy apathy toward the unique evil of the barbaric terrorism waged against Israel by Hamas on October the 7th. And there are Jewish communities of faith not very far away from here that feel the weight of that spiritual drowsiness, that drowsy apathy. By the same token, when we stand exclusively with our Israeli siblings, it can become awfully tempting to settle for a drowsy apathy toward the systemic violence and hatred that has led to the long-standing mistreatment of peace-seeking Palestinian individuals and families at the hand 
were at the hands of the Israelis. And in the midst of all of the historical complexity surrounding that, it can become tempting for all of us to jettison the Middle East from our ethical discourse and reflection altogether. Can it? Too complicated. We don't know what to do with that part of the world. And we wind up settling for the moral slumber of convenient sound bites and whispered allegiances that result in no healing or redemption whatsoever. I suppose the point that I'm making is that peace with justice, and that's always the goal, peace with justice is never generated by slumber and apathy and indifference, not in the Middle East and nowhere else, quite frankly. Peace with justice comes about only through the diligent work of hearts and minds that are awakened to the priorities of God and that are committed to realizing those priorities even when the circumstances become exhaustingly complex. We have to stay in the conversation and we have to be awake in the conversation. I think Jesus understood all of this, which is why he communicates this bizarre little parable with such urgency and concludes it with such urgency. Keep awake, therefore. Stay alert and wide-eyed because you don't want to miss the moments. And I'll tell you, I'm with you in wondering, what does that kind of spiritual awakeness look like? What does that kind of spiritual awakeness look like? You might have some ideas about that. Maybe at the very least, that kind of spiritual awakeness looks like a church that dares to believe that this God of the universe is relentlessly and ceaselessly and creatively and redemptively at work on behalf of a world that this God desperately loves and stubbornly refuses to abandon. Maybe spiritual awakeness requires believing that about the character of our God. Or, at the very least, maybe spiritual awakeness looks like a church that is actively participating in the redemptive things that God is doing inside the church and outside the church. Or, at the very least, maybe spiritual awakeness looks like a life that is postured toward the things of God, so that that life is consistently committed to the way of Jesus, which is always the way of compassion, love, justice, generosity. You know, today is Commitment Sunday in the life of this amazing church. And if you're a first-time guest with us, let me say just a word about that. Commitment Sunday is an opportunity for uh, the people of this church, the friends and members of this church, to make a prayerful financial commitment to the 2024 ministry of Christ Church in New York City. And I'm speaking to you from the depths of my soul when I say that I really believe that this year's Commitment Sunday is an opportunity for this church's people to practice spiritual awakeness for the future of our church's ministry, the vision of which is multi-layered. You know, the vision for our church's ministry for 2024 
is in many ways a vision about keeping awake to the spiritual and practical needs of our children and our families. And do you know why we talk about that so much? Because we believe what Jesus seemed to believe about children, and that is that children are uniquely, mystically connected to the heart of God that Jesus incarnated. We dare to believe that, and that's why we're doing something rather bold. We're making plans to offer a vacation Bible school in 2024, and that hasn't happened around here in a long time. That's why we're committed to the continued development of Sunday school and why we're committed to offering nurturing events for children and families, including a day retreat in 2024. It's why we're so committed to expanding and growing our children's choir so that our children might learn to sing the songs of faith with joy. Our vision for ministry for 2024 is also a vision of keeping awake to the urgency of worship. And hear that phrase, the urgency of worship. Because friends, we really do believe that worship, the stuff that we're doing right now, is the doxological heart of everything that we do as a church. We really believe that. And you know, we have this incredible music ministry in the life of our church. You know, church choir, if that's the truth, if we have if we have an incredible music ministry, if you think that that's true, let me hear you say amen. amen. All right. <laughs> Parish choir, if you think that that's true, if you think that we have this incredible music ministry, let me hear you say hallelujah. hallelujah. Congregation, if you think that we have an incredible music ministry, let me hear you say giddy up. <laughs> I really... <laughs> No joke, I was blanking on appropriate liturgical responses. I'm sorry, that was the first thing that... We have this incredible ministry of music, and we want to continue investing in it so that the songs of faith of all of our generations elevate our worship and keep it a priority. Our vision for ministry in 2024 is about keeping awake to the unique needs of our marginalized persons, homeless persons with whom we minister every Sunday afternoon in sharing table, our senior citizens who are marginalized in many different ways often and with whom we're in relationship, especially in our ministry with the Methodist home and our siblings in Washington Heights, that portion of our city with whom we are in ministry regularly thanks to the work of our Washington Heights campus and thanks to the work of Nido de Esperanza that is continuing to have such a significant impact on the cycle of poverty in this city. Our vision for ministry in 2024 is about being attentive to the fact that we are one church and two campuses and you do need to know that. We have this amazing campus in Washington Heights, this amazing campus at Park Avenue, but we will be one church and two campuses only when we create opportunities for shared ministry and relationship building. Our vision for ministry in 2024 is about keeping awake to the urgency of spiritual growth. You know, Tyler has been working hard on preparing a confirmation class to be offered in 2024, the first time we've done that for a while. So excited about that. That's why we're making plans to continue also with faith forum on Sundays and small groups and why we're relaunching in this new year conversations on race and why we're relaunching a podcast ministry that is creative and innovative and we're doing that 
not to be trendy. We're doing it to nurture our relationships with one another and to strengthen our discipleship to Jesus. And you know what else? Our vision for ministry in 2024 is about doing what we can to support a really exceptional church staff that has been newly reconfigured and whose leadership we desperately need. Desperately. See, that's what I'm inviting you to support with your commitment. I'm not asking you to support a budget. Because quite frankly, a budget is merely a boring resource that helps us to keep track of things. I'm asking you to support a multi-layered vision of keeping awake. You know, I've not even been in the life of this church for 10 months yet. And I'm telling you the truth when I say that I have come to love this church and its ministry and its people. I have come to love you. And all of a sudden, as I say that, it feels like I've stepped into a Hallmark Christmas movie all of a sudden. But, you know, I really do love you and I love this church's ministry and I'm so excited to be here. And a little bit later on in worship when we sing our final hymn, there will be the opportunity to bring forward your commitment cards. You found a commitment card in the bulletin and I'm, I'm confident, I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but I'm confident that there's going to be a basin. Right, Raymond? There's going to be a basin that will appear here for the final <laughs> hymn, almost by magic. And I'm going to invite you to bring your commitment card forward during the last hymn and let your coming forward be a sign of your commitment not only to Jesus but to the ministry of this church. And if you're watching online and you're experiencing this church's ministry significantly, know that I'm speaking to you as well. You can't come forward in person, but you will have an opportunity to make your commitment online. And if this church is ministering to you in some way, take that commitment seriously. And if you're a first-time guest with us, it might not be time for you to make any sort of financial commitment, but I hope that there will be an opportunity for you to commit something. Maybe something that you have been moved today to take up in your walk of faith or to lay aside in your walk of faith and you simply want to write a word about that or two on your commitment card. Come forward with that commitment as well. And the reason that I'm so unapologetic in inviting you to make that commitment is that Jesus was so unapologetic in offering this challenge. Keep awake, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. And my prayer is that the commitments we make personally today will be a reflection of our desire to keep awake to the priorities of God. And friends, as you make your commitments and as you live your life beyond this worship service, please, spiritually speaking, don't forget your lamps. And don't forget the oil of love for God and love for neighbors so that the bright flame, the eye-catching flame of expectant generosity will shine brightly in your life everywhere you go. All for the sake of Jesus, in whose name I gratefully preach. Amen.